0: Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the Book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other conversations podcasts where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. So, most of you guys know that life, uh, probably the majority of life, if you've lived much life at all, is kind of like a storm. <laughs> it's just, it's a lot of things outside of your control. If there's one thing that I know about weather, it's that it's completely outside of your control. Um, and that's one thing that anyone who's out on the ocean or anyone who's out in a sea um, gets. And interestingly, the passage for day it's kind of a unique chapter in the book of Acts. It's really the story of a shipwreck, essentially. Uh, it's really the story of um, Paul and a group of people on a ship actually not, um, you know, not, not th- things not going so well, getting caught up in a storm. And it was interesting as I was reading this because, uh, you know, I always start early in the week, I kind of look at the passage and I'm just kicking it around, thinking, what do I, you know, what do we do with this? And... Uh, as all of you guys, you know, watching the news every day and getting just an ulcer from stress uh, every day, uh, and, and just realizing, you know, there's a lot of similarities between Paul's situation in Acts chapter 27 uh, and our present situation. We're in this present situation where there's a crazy storm going, okay, COVID 19. Um, There's a lot of uh, um, political polarization in our country, a lot of, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, people are saying different things, people are mad, people are frustrated. The first day that the mask thing started, I mean, I was, like, hearing people yelling and and upset and frustrated and leaving stores angry. Um, And it just, I was like, man, this is a storm. Like, we are in a storm right now. And you could just feel it, it's palpable. And the reality is, is we're not the one really controlling the ship. There's many other people right now, um, and I'm not going political here, I'm just pointing out, there's other people that are kind of deciding things, like this Wednesday we will wear masks. That was a decision that was outside of our control. And so Paul finds himself on a ship that's encountering a storm and Paul's not steering it. He's totally at the mercy of the captain of the ship, who um, honestly, isn't really the best captain. And we, you know, I'm not trying to make a point there. I'm just saying, he, he just—it it is what it is. And Paul has to sort of sit back and watch decisions be made outside of his control. Uh, and I thought, well, that kind of feels like life right now. What's coming next? What's the next decision? What's coming down the pike? How is the ship gonna be steered? Uh, and honestly, we don't have a lot of say in it. So there's a lot I think we can learn here. But what I love about the passage is the way that Paul, the way that Paul um carries himself in the midst of the storm. I love the way that he carries himself. You know, there's a lot of temptation right now to throw up our arms and get frustrated and voice our complaints and call the captain an idiot or whatever we want to do. But Paul doesn't do any of that. He takes a very interesting way of, of responding to the storm as it comes, and I really want you to see that. Okay, he has a very calming and life-giving presence in the midst of a storm. And I would venture to say that the disposition of the believer in the midst of a storm on a ship that we're not steering should be one of calm disposition, a disposition of calm and a presence of faith. I think that should be our disposition in storms. As the story flows, you'll even see um, that Paul even begins, because of his calmness, because of some other things, he actually becomes the leader of the ship, ultimately, by the end of the story. He starts out being somebody that nobody wants to listen to, and by the end of the story, everyone says, well, what do you think, Paul? And don't forget, he's a prisoner. And so I think that if we can actually control ourselves in the middle of this storm, and be a calming presence, and be a balanced person, that has the truth, we could actually come out of this thing with people asking us what we think. Wouldn't that be novel? So let me give you an overview of the passage, a little bit of background since we're not going to read it because it is very long. Um, Up until this point, here's how Paul got on a ship headed for Rome. Okay, essentially, Paul got arrested. He got arrested because he was in the temple, peaceably, doing the temple practices, and a mob started. Some Jews from probably Ephesus saw Paul and they started, uh, basically created a mob to try to take him out. And the Romans intervened. The Romans pulled Paul from the mob, arrested him, brought him um, into the barracks uh, where he said, hey, excuse me, can I preach the gospel to the mob? Because that's how Paul rolled. So Paul stops, he preaches the gospel to the mob that was just trying to kill him. That was his first defense. There's four defenses that we've looked at uh, in the end of the book of Acts that Paul's given. First one was to the mob. Then the the Romans call the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy, and to try uh, Paul, and he gives another defense to the Council of the Sanhedrin. We looked at that. Then Paul gives another defense, his third defense, before the governor, Felix. And uh, Felix, basically, even though he knew Paul uh, was innocent, he basically left Paul sitting in prison for two years because he was a passive procrastinator, uh, and he didn't want to have to deal with anything hard. So Felix is removed, and then another governor comes, and Paul gives his fourth defense before Festus. Festus invites the Jewish uh, puppet king of Judea named Agrippa to come and try to help him, and Paul gives his fourth defense to those two men. We looked at that last week. Uh, At the end, Paul recognizes right away that he's not going to get justice from any of these judges, so he appeals to Caesar. It was his Roman right to do so. Uh, just Similar to the way we can appeal to a higher court, Paul appeals to the highest court, which is Caesar, and Festus um, basically says, okay, I can't say no to you. Even though he knows the charges are rubbish, and he knows he really doesn't have a case to send with him, he sends Paul to Caesar anyway. So that means that, um, could you throw the slide up, uh, guys, real quick? So that means that Paul is in Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast in Judea, southern Israel, and he has to go all the way, if you follow the red line, all the way over to Italia, Italy, to Rome, okay, where Caesar is at. Some people call this the fourth missionary journey of Paul. I think that's fair because he was certainly on mission the whole time that he did it. But this is essentially what chapter 27 covers, is that red line right there. So you can leave that up for a little while. And I'm just going to give you in summary basically what chapter 27 says. So Paul boards a vessel in uh, verses 1 uh, through 8. And the first vessel uh, basically just works its way up the coastline of Israel, if you can see, ending in Sidon. This was not a Roman vessel. Uh, It was basically a third party thing that they um, put Paul on. He makes his way up um, to Sidon, uh, and then they put him on a second ship up in Sidon. The second ship is a large ship of about 276 people, we learn in the end. It's not a Roman ship. It's actually a grain vessel from Egypt making its way to Rome. Most of the grain that came to Rome came from Egypt, so they make their way Um, along the coastline, hugging the coastline uh, in order to try to stay as safe as they can. And so you can see uh, that route. That's basically verses one through eight. Uh, Now, in verse nine, Paul basically observes that the situation that they're in on the boat was not ideal. Okay, Paul was a pretty smart guy and he probably had traveled more miles than anybody on the ship. Okay, Paul spent most of his life traveling. He spent a lot of time on the sea and he understood that at the particular time that they chose to leave from the, the um, Asia Minor across the sea to Crete, that island there that you can see, that the particular time that they chose was too late in the year. You could just, it wasn't like nowadays where you, you had a motor on your boat and you could travel anytime you wanted. It, they had to go based off of the winds, based off of the season, and Paul's a smart cookie. He knows that it's too late in the year for them to go. And so he voices his opinion to the captain Uh, But at this point, the captain looks at Paul and goes, you're a prisoner. Why do I care what you think? So he basically blows him off. So they make their way to Crete, to the eastern shore of Crete. uh, And there, the weather starts to get bad. It starts to get terrible. uh, And what they really should have done was just bed down for the winter and wait till um, the right season to go. So they don't do that. Okay, they don't do that. The captain of the ship essentially says, No, I think we can get around to the other side of the island, Crete, which is a better place to harbor for the winter. So they do it, and a crazy storm comes and blows them out to sea underneath Crete, what would be underneath to us. Uh, essentially, just things get crazy. Things get crazy, and their ship is in a, in a place where basically they have to start throwing their tackle overboard. Um, Everyone's freaking out. It literally says in one point that they lose hope completely. Okay, they basically at this point have have decided that they're all going to die. Things get wild. For three weeks, they're getting blown around. This is the point where Paul begins to become a voice of reason. (laughs) This is the point where Paul, as we'll see more closely, Paul actually encourages them that God is going to sustain them. God is going to sustain them. Verse 33 through 38, Paul encourages them to eat a meal, and then they throw all of their grain overboard to lighten the ship, essentially. Uh, But Paul lets them know, hey, we're going to get through this. The Lord actually spoke to me. We're going to get through this, but the ship is gone. The ship's a goner. We're going to survive. And then verses 39 through 44, they run the ship aground at a basically at an island called Malta, okay? Malta's over there to the left below Sicilia. You see that? So they make it to Malta after three weeks of being storm-tossed around. Um, they, they shipwreck on Malta. The, sh- the ship is destroyed, but they make it safe, uh, and we'll pick up right there in the text next week. Now, there's an interesting point where when they shipwreck, the, the captain um, says, we need to kill all the prisoners because they're gonna run away. But Paul had gained so much favor at this point uh, with the centurion. The centurion says, no, let's not do that. So they don't. They allow the prisoners to live. They walk on planks from the ship um, into Malta where the the story continues to progress from there. Now, that's the really abbreviated version, okay? Um, I hope that that helps. Uh, That's the really abbreviated version. What I want to do is here, I want you to note three things that Paul has at his disposal which allows him to have this calm disposition, Okay? Now, I didn't, I didn't give a very good cinematic Hollywood version of how crazy this scene is, but it's crazy. It's, it's, it's turmoil. Um, it's, it's everything you would hope to see in a good shipwreck movie. Okay? There's people literally trying to, to leave the boat, trying to sneak out and take the life raft, and that has to be stopped, and they're throwing everything over the, over the, the side. I mean, it would just be intense. Everyone thought they were going to die. Everyone, everyone thought this was the end. But yet in the midst of this chaos, Paul is able to keep his head. He's able to be a person of stability, a person of balance in this. And what I wanna do is I wanna give the three things that Paul had at his disposal in order to give him this disposition. Now the beautiful thing is most sermons make you walk away feeling like you need to do something. That's not this sermon. These aren't three things Paul did. This is three things that Paul had. Three things that Paul had, and they're not three things that only Paul has. They're three things that we have, too. So uh, I want you to put this into context in your brain, and I want you to think, okay, we're in a storm, and we're not steering the ship, and everybody wants to know what I think, and everybody wants to talk about the news, and everybody wants to grunt, or to, 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 everybody wants to, not grunt, that was the wrong word. Everybody wants to gripe grunt. You know, everyone's to grunt. No, everyone's to gripe. Everyone's to complain. Everybody has a thought. Everybody has an opinion. Um, Everything is crazy. Everything feels like it's just going down the tubes. What should the Christian disposition be in this moment? Well, we have three things which allow us to have the kind of disposition Paul had, and I want to look at those. So let me give them all to you up front, and then we'll go through them, and then we'll be done. Number one, if you're a note taker, he had the union of friendship the union of friendship. Number two, he had the end of the story. In other words, he knew the end of the story. And number three, he had the providence of God. So let's just work through those. The first thing Paul had at his disposal was the union of friendship. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 27. This is the kind of thing you would just read right over, but it's actually incredibly important. Verse 2 says, embarking in a ship which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian, for Thessalonica. Now, you might notice a word there. The word is we. Who's we? I mean, Paul's a prisoner. He's being transported as a prisoner on one of the most dangerous and long journeys out there. And there's a we here. The we is Luke. Luke, the author of the book of Acts is with the apostle Paul, along with a man named Aristarchus, who we read about elsewhere in the New Testament. These two friends of Paul decide to go with him. Isn't that incredible? He's a prisoner being transported on one of the most dangerous uh, journeys at one of the worst times possible, and these two men see their friend, the Apostle Paul, and they say, we are going to go with him. It's easy to imagine this scene and think that it was Paul versus the captain, and Paul versus the ship, and Paul versus the Roman guards, and that he was all alone, and like a Jedi master, he just sort of navigated his way through it. But when you really look at the text, you realize that Paul was with his friends. He was with his friends. He did this, he went through this, not alone, but together with his friends. And one of the great realities of serving Christ is that we do not have to do it alone. We do not have to do it alone. You know, it's interesting. We think of Jesus's relationship with the apostles and we think of it as being very functional and practical and mechanical. Well, yeah, Jesus needed to pick 12 guys so that he could pass the baton and so that he could establish church leadership and so that he could give them sort of the credential of writing scripture. It's a very practical function. That's a very, very wrong way to think about Jesus' relationship to the apostles, to the disciples. That was certainly part of it. Jesus selected 12 men with the understanding in his own heart and his mind that he was gonna become their friends. It was certainly much more than their friend, but he saw them as his friends, and he picked 12 men, knowing that he was going to grow close to them. If you don't believe me, flip over really quick to Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. Luke 22 and verse 14. When the hour came, now this is the last moments of Jesus's life, He spent three years sitting around campfires, hiking, healing people, marching, doing everything that you would do, every waking moment, essentially, Jesus has spent with these men. And in verse 14, just hours before his death, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, I want you to remember something here, that in the Middle Eastern world, having a meal with someone was a very intimate thing. This wasn't just something you did with anybody. This was something uh, that you did with your closest of friends. And it was a very, uh, very close connecting kind of a thing that you would do. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That doesn't sound like a very mechanical relationship, does it? In other words, Jesus, for three years, he's been pondering and thinking about and preparing his heart for this moment where he would eat the last meal with his friends the last meal with his friends, before he would suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now that is really cool. Hey, we're gonna have this meal again, <laughs> and it's gonna be when the kingdom of God comes fully. And so on and so forth. Now, now that's where we get the idea of communion. But the idea of communion, the roots of communion, the roots of what Jesus told us to do in the cup and in the bread, and the, the deepest roots of that is relationship with each other friendship with each other. Jesus desired to sit and have an intimate meal with his friends. He desired to do ministry with his friends. He desired to heal the sick and preach the kingdom and bring the gospel with his friends. And even up to the moment before his crucifixion, he wants to be with his friends. All the more bitter the betrayal when his friends turn their backs on him, right? But his desire was to be their friends. Now John, flip over now to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is one of the coolest verses to me in the Bible. Fifteen twelve. it says, this is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, I want you to be a friend the way that I've been a friend to you, okay? I want you to be a friend to someone else the way that I've been a friend to you. And then he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, one of the most astounding statements, the God of the universe says this, you are my friends. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I mean, we, we, we certainly should have a, a very awe-inspiring idea of God, that he is so much other than us. He is the I am. He is the eternal one. He is the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent one. But at the same time, he manifests himself in the person of Christ and he comes to his friends and he says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer, he says, do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And of course, when he's talking about laying down his life for his friends, he's speaking literally. He's literally about to go. To the cross for his friends uh, i just want you to see that jesus's design and jesus's template for the way that we go through storms that jesus design designed for the way that we do kingdom work the way that we weather hard things is to do it with our believing friends to do it within the community of the body of christ and paul understood this he never did anything alone he did it with people he did it with people and he had such a deep affection for his friends, Philippians 1:8. he said, "For God is my witness," he wrote to the Philippians, "How I yearn for you, all with the affection of Christ Jesus." They were his friends. I think of Jesus, or Paul, pardon me, leaving um, the beaches of Ephesus, and they're weeping on his neck because they cared for Paul deeply, and they knew he was going to be arrested. They had a deep friendship. The Philippians, he wrote to them in in his letter at the last chapter. They were the only church that brought him food, brought him sustenance, took care of him while he was in prison, he said. He had a deep affection for them. This is the way that the body was designed to function. We were meant to live boldly, kingdom, we were meant to live bold, kingdom lives in the company of those that we have come to love and enjoy. That's the way it was designed. So, my first point here is that part of the reason Paul was able to keep such a calm demeanor was because he had the body of Christ with him. He had the body of Christ with him. I'll be honest, um, so far, there's been a lot of joys about planting this church. But so far, the greatest joy has been being able to do it with my best friends. (laughs) I mean, we came out here with our best friends and did it as a team. And that was one thing I always said we never do we never plant a church alone. But we did it with our friends, and it's made it such a joy. And even when it's been hard, we just draw sustenance from them. And that friend group now has grown and it's bloomed and it's gotten larger and some of you have just come into that even more recently. Um, but it's just a, such a sweet thing. I, I think back to my, my best years serving Jesus, it was always with a group of people that had a like-minded, a like-hearted focus together. I think of my wife, the joy of serving Jesus with my wife because she's my friend. And we have this, this mutual desire to serve Jesus together. Uh, some of you guys might be asking, well, okay, well how do I get that? <laughs> how do I, that sounds great, Sam, glad you have that. How do I get that? I'll tell you three things. Number one, the nucleus of that friendship needs to be the gospel. Otherwise, the friendship fully exists in, in for itself, and therefore, it's self-defeating. If you're, most of our friendships are pretty shallow, can we be honest? Most of them are, hey, we have a mutual interest in, Whatever, racquetball or political interests or this person, I work with them. And so the nucleus of your relationship is we both like the same thing and it'll never go past that. The nucleus of a gospel-centered relationship is that we are both born again into the same family and we are part of something deeper than anything else around us. We, we have a more deep relationship than any other relationship in our life. So, so gospel is one of them. Find somebody that you can have a gospel relationship with. Secondly, find somebody that you can get on mission with. Okay, that's where real relationships are born. You know why Paul was so close with these guys? Because they were on a mission together. They had purpose together. Brothers are born in the trenches. Okay, They fought battles together against the kingdom of darkness. They Spread the gospel together they were starving together they were in prison together I think about Paul and Silas in a prison in the Philippian jail remember that just beat to pieces and they're just sitting there praising God into the night as friends no wonder Paul had such affection for these guys they were friends they weathered storms and lastly they stuck together you know Paul and Barnabas they disagreed at one point remember that but I guarantee their friendship continued even as you part ways, you, just, you stay together. You keep pressing through the awkwardness. You keep pressing through the hard things. You keep pressing through the things when someone says something offensive to you. You don't just move on. You move through it. You press through it. And that's how you have deep, abiding, gospel-centered, Jesus-like friendships. This is part of the reason Jesus gave his life, was to birth the organism of the church. And the heart of the organism of the church is deep friendship. And that's why we do this. That's why we're a church family, because it's in our oneness that the lost see Jesus through us. That's why our tagline has always been, we're going to be the church that the lost people need to see so that we can preach the gospel that lost people need to hear. Because what saves people is the way that we love each other in the body of Christ, the way that he loved us. That's why Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your love. It's not some hippy, dippy, 1960s generic pot-smoking love. That's a deep, abiding friendship and affection for one another within the church body that is so terrestrial that people go, what is that, and how do I get that? And the answer is, is that we are one family, supernaturally. Now, I have to say two things that are contextual to the moment we're in. As your pastor, I need you to hear these things. When you're on social media, I'm not speaking to anyone in here, I'm just speaking in generalities. When you're on social media and you're hurling quick, sharp, spiteful, hurtful things at a Christian who just happens to be on the other side of the political aisle, or just happens to be on the other side of the, um, what you think you should do about masks, or COVID, or whatever, maybe they're more conservative about it or not, just remember that that person Is closer to you in relation than even your own mother. You understand that? I'm just watching the church right now and I'm just really disappointed. I don't mean us, I just mean the church. I'm watching the church and I'm watching Christians say things to other Christians that are absolutely ridiculous, forgetting that that is their brother, their sister in Christ. And that is a deeper relationship than any other familial relationship you have. I thought of the example the other day, if I, was, if I was protesting and there was a group of counter-protesters, there's nothing wrong with protesting necessarily, I'm just if I was there uh, and I was shouting things at the other side, I wouldn't think much of it. But then if my kids, my sweet kids that I love so much, they're part of me, if they walked across the line and became part of the other side, would that change the way maybe that I was saying what I was saying? Would that change the demeanor in which I was saying what I was saying? I don't, I don't have to deny what I believe. It doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. But when I realize that my kids now are on the other side, you better believe I'm not throwing any rocks. And you better believe if someone else throws a rocks, I'm going to stop them. Because my kids are over there. Do we think about each other that way as the body of Christ? Do we think about each other that way? The second thing I need to say is that no matter how uncomfortable this gets, matter how hard it is to breathe through your mask, I need you to remember that you need this. Not listening to me talk. That's not what I mean. You need this. You need each other. You need the family. You need the body of Christ. If you allow the enemy to separate you out from the herd, he will pick you off. It's that simple. And right now, there are Christians that are going, eh, I don't think I'm going to really plug into the body this week because, eh plug in. If it's not here on Sunday morning, then do it elsewhere, but be with the body because without that friendship, we will perish. Paul was no dummy, and he knew that he needed support, and his two friends, Aristarchus and Luke, sacrificed their rights and got on the ship. Isn't that cool? Isn't that beautiful? I want to encourage you. If someone's not getting on your ship, get on theirs. Do you know what I mean by that? If someone's not getting on your ship, if you're not being the Paul, then be the Aristarchus. Who is on mission that I can go support them? Who's on mission that I can go be part of that with them? The second thing that Paul had, and that one's a little long, trust me, these will be shorter. Uh, The second thing that Paul had was he had at his disposal the end of the story. And I would suggest to you guys that the reason we can take a deep breath and kind of just calm down a little bit is because you know the end of the story, okay? I mean, we know what's gonna happen. I mean, why are we so surprised? Why are we surprised at the evil of man? Why are we surprised uh, at, the, at the, the dysfunctionality of government, the dysfunctionality of human beings to coexist? We are in a broken and fallen world that needs to be restored and renovated. I have the end of the book right here. I'll let you borrow it if you want. It's really a page turner. We know what happens. And there's all kinds of squabbling about whether it's pre-mid-trib, post-trib rapture, premillennial, amillennial. All of that aside, every, just about every real, true Christian. Tradition agrees on one thing. You know what it is? Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, I'm gonna gonna say this, he's gonna kick butt and take names. He's gonna set up his rule and reign completely, fully and his people will be there united with him forever. I mean, come on guys, can we calm down a little bit? I'm not saying we shouldn't be uh, upset about evil. I'm not saying we shouldn't be frustrated with injustice. I'm not saying we shouldn't be uh, caring about the thing. You know what's interesting? Paul cared a whole lot about the ship. Did you notice that? I don't mean the ship. He cared about the people. I mean, he's like, hey, uh, he didn't abandon them. He didn't cause a mutiny. He didn't say, this captain's an idiot. Let's go find a new ship. He didn't say, hey, I'm jumping over. I'm I'm getting out of here. You guys, you know, have fun shipwrecking. That's not what Paul did. He was part of them. He existed within them, but he trusted the Lord's providence. Now, why could he trust the Lord's providence? Because God gave him the end of the story. And you're saying, well, an angel never appeared to me and told me what's going to happen. Okay. We know, we know, we know what's gonna happen. We know what's going to happen. One of the believer's greatest assets in the storm is knowing the end of the story. And here's the reality. Can I tell you what's gonna happen in the end of the story? Our story, the ship's gonna go, but we're not. And that's what Paul said. Hey, the ship's gonna go, but we'll be okay. The ship is gonna go. Okay? Uh, this, is not, this is not an anti-American thing, but the United States, it's going to go. I'm thankful for our country. I'm thankful for our freedoms, but it's going to go. The, Ameri- the America is not the kingdom of God. Okay? Uh, and no country in the world right now is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in the midst of these countries, working in the midst and the unseen. And at one point, the ship is going to go, but we will be preserved. I love that. Now, there's, some, there's a gospel point here. You just have to see because it's so cool. And that is, in the text, why is the 200 and however many people it is on the boat, why are they preserved? Why do they not die? It's because there's someone on the boat that God is doing something with, that God favors. What an amazing picture. What an amazing picture of the gospel. The gospel is not that we are saved because we've done something. The gospel is we are saved because Christ is on our boat. And it's actually his boat. I mean, how lucky, how lucky are these guys? They are saved because Paul's on their boat. And in the same way, we are saved, not because of ourself or anything we've done, but because Christ is on our boat, and it's, it's his boat. In fact, he is the boat, okay? If we're gonna really go down that road. I love it in Matthew fifteen twenty two. The apostles are in a storm. It's a similar situation. They're freaking out. Everything's crazy. All of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the waves. Just no no big deal, just walking along the waves. And there's, of course, the whole scene we're familiar with where Peter hops out and tries to walk in the water and starts to sink and et cetera, et cetera. And there's all kinds of points you can make there. But the point I love, and it's the one you miss, is it literally says in Matthew chapter 15, uh, 25, I think it is, Jesus got in the boat and the storm ceased. (laughs) I love that. Jesus' foot hit the boat and the storm stopped. And I'm just, I'm just, I've never had so much clarity in my, in my life right now about something. All we need right now in this storm is we need to keep Jesus in the boat, okay? There are just, there's gonna be so many temptations to freak out about things, take rabbit trails, and get focused on the wrong thing, when in reality, what we need to do is just keep pulling Jesus into the boat and keep saying, Jesus, this is about you. We know the end of the story. We know that we're preserved because of our union with you. It's about you, it's about you, it's about you. It's about you. Not saying politics don't matter, but don't forget, it's about him. It's about him, and we are people that are supposed to get that. We're supposed to remember that. We have to be the people that remind those around of us what really matters right now. Now, thirdly, the third thing Paul has at his hands is the providence of God. I'm just going to read uh, verse 41 of our text. Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stem was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, interestingly, wishing to save Paul, what does this guy have? What reason does he have to save Paul? He's a Roman, I I I mean, yeah, there's that, that's true, that's true, that's true, but but there's something happening here there's just this continual providence you know what providence is where god where god is using natural events to to create his ultimate will here okay he's using natural events to to get his will here so the centurion wishing to save paul kept them from carrying out their plan he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship and so it was that all were brought safely to land now there's all kinds of things you could do with this allegorically, you know? You could, you, could, you could just go crazy with allegory. Allegory means that something's a symbol of something else. But I like what Tony Marita said. He's like, he's like, just remember, and this is an old statement, but the plain thing is the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing. Okay, what's the point of Acts chapter 27? God said he would do it, and he did it. God said he would do it, and he did it. I was well, saying that's just too obvious of an application. Okay, but do you live like you believe that? I don't. I mean, I'm like, I want to get in here and find the nuances of chapter 27 and God's like, hey, dummy. He wouldn't call me that because it's not kind, but, um, you know, my my paraphrase, hey, do you believe that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do? Do you believe me? And God does. And he does it in such a way where he doesn't fully take away the suffering. Do you notice that? He does it in the midst and through, providentially, through the suffering. I thought this was an interesting quote here by David Gooding. He said, From the moment they boarded the doomed ship to the cold, wild morning it broke, up on the shore of Malta, there was no miracle. No divine power calmed the sea. As some years previously, Galilee's tempest had subsided in recognition of her master's voice. No angelic powers conveyed the ship unscathed into port. All the passengers and crew were saved, but only after two weeks and more agonized suffering and final inglorious hair-raising scramble from the wreck through the surf to the shore. If Paul was God's own appointed apostle and ambassador, sent to represent the gospel of God's own son to the highest authority on earth, and if God is the God who created and controls nature, who rules over the surging sea, and when its waves mount up, stills them, then why did not God's kingly rule order the Mediterranean to give his ambassador a smoother passage, instead of torturing him for two weeks and then throwing him up like a half-drowned rat on the beach? Sometimes I feel like, Lord... Could you have given me, like, a pleasure cruise? Like, could you have sent a yacht even? I mean, why does this have to be so hard? I'll be honest with you guys, man. Planting a church nine months ago, I did not see any of this coming. (laughs) And in some ways, I feel like a drowned rat. I'm just like, Lord, this is like the worst time in the world to plant a church. And I think God's response back to me is like, no, I actually think it's exactly when I wanted you to plant this church, Because I have something in mind for you, Philippians. I have something in mind for you, Philippi Church. Something that I want to do in this moment. And I think what he wants us to do in this moment is he wants us to lead. He wants us to lead like Paul did. He wants us to stand up in the middle of the chaos of the boat going down and say, hey, don't forget, church, what the main thing is. And don't forget that just because it feels like God's not working doesn't mean that he isn't. Paul's a reminder that God often does his most miraculous things not just in the obviously supernatural things and events but in the providential natural events. Okay, that was a clunky way of saying something. Let me try it again. Okay, oftentimes God is working most supernaturally not through supernatural things but through very natural things. This is a very good reminder of that. There's nothing supernatural about a storm. There's nothing supernatural about getting shipwrecked nothing supernatural by anything in chapter 27 in fact, except for the fact that all of the natural events just so happen to work out the way God wanted it, and gets Paul where he's supposed to go. And it gives Paul an opportunity to be a witness and a stabilizing force on a ship full of people that don't know the Lord. You better believe that Paul told the gospel to these guys. I guarantee it. The point is that God keeps his word. He keeps his word. So let me just give you some review and then we'll be done. In okay, the chaos and craziness of life's storms, number one, don't go through them alone. Okay? Don't go through them alone. If somebody's not getting on your ship, get on somebody else's. Who can you support? How, who, who, can you, who can you be a Timothy to? Who can you be an Aristarchus to? Who can you be a Luke to? Who can you see that, that God is using that has mission and say, I'm going to come alongside you and I want to support you. I'm going to get on the boat with you. Don't do it alone. Secondly, don't forget that the ship is on its way down, but you're not, (laughs) okay? The ship is on its way down, but you're not. So you can watch the news, and you can take a deep breath, and you can remember that even though everything seems like it's falling apart, you know the end of the story. And lastly, don't forget the track record. Listen to me. Don't forget the track record of the one who's in charge. He has a perfect track record for for delivering on his promises. And there is no more greater evidence than the person of Jesus Christ because he said he would do it and he did it. He did it exactly as he said. If he was good at fulfilling the first promise, I think he's gonna be pretty good at fulfilling the next one. All right. I wanna end with with one more song. So if you guys wanna come back up and we're gonna pray, I invite you guys to stand. Lord, We are so thankful this morning that you are in control. God, I just need to hear that this morning. It's just just a simple reality, but I need to hear it, God. You're in control, and this is all about you. Jesus, you are the pastor of your church. You will deliver your bride. Lord, we just want to believe that this morning. And we want to sing and declare your praises because you're worthy, Father. So we choose to end our morning singing through our masks because you're worthy of it, God. In Jesus' name, amen.